Welcome back to Inside Jackson Station. That's Jeff Calder singing. Jeff's the founder of a band called the Swimming Pool Cues. They began in Atlanta in 1978. They were a major influence in the alternative music scene throughout the South in the 1980s. Dan Harrison, the author of Live at Jackson Station, will be joining us shortly to interview Jeff about what it was like for the swimming pool cues to perform live at Jackson Station, the incredible experience of sharing these amazing performances with a diverse and tolerant crowd. We'll be hearing that shortly, but before we do, we're gonna pick up with a little bit more of the swimming pool cues performing live in Savannah, Georgia in 2011, corruption. This is Inside Jackson Station. Thanks for coming back. Welcome to another edition of Inside Jackson Station, where we take you behind the scenes of the iconic Hodges uh, Blues Bar. With us today, we have Jeff Calder, the founding member of the Swimming Pool Cues, which has been around since about uh, 1979, and uh, they're based out of the Atlanta area, and they play Jackson Station uh, a number of times in the 1980s, early early 1980s, and then Jeff Calder also played Jackson Station with his later band, the Supreme Court, in 1990. Jeff, welcome to Inside Jackson Station. Well, it's great to be here, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Your book is terrific. I can't believe you actually did all the, the research that was required. And look, the cues are ready to come back and play again anytime. And yeah. I'm sure Jackson Station looks probably about the same as it did then. It may be a little bit rough for the wear, but... Uh... <laughs> it wasn't exactly... In, in, in pristine condition back then, but we would love to have you back in Hodges, back in, in Greenwood at some point down the road. And hopefully Jackson Station will. Yeah, you can count on us. And, and I must acknowledge that you were one of the first people that was uh, maybe foolish enough to speak to me about Jackson Station back uh, in, I think it was the 2014. And I, I thank you so much for your memories and your commentary and your reflections, which uh, ended up in the book. And what I'd like to do today, if it's okay with you, is to delve a little bit deeper into that narrative and along the way, maybe touch on a few other topics like growing up in Florida in the 1970s and then, you know, making the move to Atlanta and then forming the cues and maybe talk a little bit about New York along the way. I grew up in Charleston. That's maybe three hours east of uh, Hodges. Yeah, I grew up in, so I grew up in Charleston. And in the 1950s and early 60s, and then my uh, family moved to Central Florida. Yeah. Into a town called Lakeland in 1964. Hmm. So that's where I spent my teenage years, except for a year that I spent um, in Macon, Georgia. I can't say that I particularly like Macon, but it was interesting because that was where I first got to see the Almond Brothers band, even before their first album came out. And then the Hampton Grease Band, which was a important group for me. And I got to be exposed at that time to the Atlanta 
music scene, which was, you know, a couple hours up the road. So that was important to me during that year. But I ended up at the University of Florida and graduated from there in 73. And, and, and you studied with Harry Cruz. I was in his undergraduate creative writing class and, uh, Gainesville, Florida was quite a, a strong rock music scene at that time. I knew the guys in Mud Crutch, which was Tom Petty's group and mm -hmm. a couple of funny stories about them. But Florida was a very active rock music world, especially when I was high school in the sixties, hardly any rock group that you could think of that did not come through the central Florida corridor. Yeah. You know, stretching from Daytona all the way to Tampa. Yeah. I, I actually went to high school in, in Gainesville for two years. I went to Buholtz High and I remember hanging, you know, out on the fringes of the University of Florida campus. Hide and Zeke Records, you know, was a, was a fixture for me then. So you're in Gainesville and then eventually you decide to make the move up to Atlanta. You're writing. I had wanted to um, be a, a writer, you know, like a serious writer a novelist or something like that. But I ended up going back to Lakeland for four or five years. I pursued a career as a freelance rock journalist. So throughout that middle seventies period, I was living in central Florida and I would cover the sort of regional beat. I wrote freelance pieces for the Tampa Tribune and for the Lakeland Ledger. And it was a lot of fun. Then I would come to Atlanta quite often and I met, I got to know Glenn Phillips and members of what would later be the swimming pool cues. And so I knew quite a bit about the Atlanta music scene during the mid seventies. And I was like a lot of rock journalists during that period, as much of an advocate as not. And rock writers were really important in getting the whole concept of new wave and punk off the ground in the United States. So, you know, I was really aware, you know, I visited New York quite a bit and I was really aware of what was going on in, in the or new wave. Which, which I think is really fascinating. So you entered the music industry circuitously or via rock journalism, a, a bit like the kid from Almost Famous. Uh, yes. A lot of people that were in that, in that world ended up being performers. Uh, when you look at Patti Smith, she was a writer and not just a poet. She did journalistic work for Cream Magazine. Uh, you look at Richard Hell, who was like a godfather of punk. Mm -hmm. He was a, a writer. You know, there were a number of people that, that were writers that moved, stepped across the line and became performers that came out of that world, which once again, and it was an advocacy world. We had like I, big ideas and stuff. I should add, not unlike the original New Wave, which was a film movement and all of those directors, uh, Godard, Truffaut, they were first Critics. Critics. Yeah, yeah. You're exactly and, right. Yeah. And theor theoreticians and then became, and, and I think that is really what happened with a lot of what the new wave and punk world was. And I have to say in conclusion that put you, if you lived in the South, in a very small number of people, by the time that we played at Hodges, which may have been 1982. By the time the swimming pool cues did that, you, it was as if we knew every single person in the South that was into the right. creative pop world of the day. And that's something that, that you mentioned in your very interesting and, and well-written piece, Living 
at night in the land of, of opportunity, which people can access at your website. And you mentioned that there wasn't a new wave or an alternative music circuit in the late 70s at all. There wasn't really a, what you think of as a circuit. The, the swimming pool cues, we, we had to all, almost like invent a kind of a circuit. But there, you know, when you look back at that period, you're talking about, I was living in Florida until 1978 when I moved to Atlanta to start swimming pool cues. With Bob Elsie, who was great, brilliant young guitar player, and Ann Richmond Boston, who was an artist, and Robert Schmidt, who was our drummer, who had played in a band that opened for the Sex Pistols in Atlanta, which was a big deal, which was a really big deal. But you were looking then at Atlanta being the only city where you could go if you wanted to start a band called the Swimming Pool Cues. You know, they knew that there was a, a an audience for original rock music in Atlanta just because I'd been coming here and known about it since 1969 when I, you know, first encountered the, say, the Hampton Grease Band. I knew that you could start a band and get 100, 200 people to come out and see you, maybe, if you were, you know, if you uh, lucky. But Athens as a music scene was only just beginning to emerge with the B-52s, short, and one or two other groups. They made quite a name for themselves very quickly. But that was really about about it. The, yeah. uh, the, except for, I, I hasten to add, the North Carolina music scene where you had the greats like Mitch Easter and the DBs and the combo world of that state. Yeah. which was about creating pop music from the get-go. It's really interesting to me how these Southern acts made a pilgrimage, so to speak, to New York in order to prove their mettle and to gain a certain amount of entree among kind of the musical elites kind of up there. Yes. Then they used that kind of cachet when they came back south and said, hey, look what we did to New York. You know, look how we fared in New York. We were embraced there. And then they try to, translate that into to the local success. Yes. I have to say though, that in the case of the swimming pool cues, most of our contemporaries, Atlanta was, and Athens were really very strong new wave towns. Mm -hmm. And, but I have to say that, and, and I, I, and we started, we played our first date in June of 1978 in Atlanta. And I have to tell you that within four or five months, we, Played a lot of engagements. We didn't really know what we were doing. You know, most of us didn't have any professional band experience, but we had to get professional or relatively professional very quickly. But in four or five months, I know that we played with the B-52s in Athens. We opened for Devo at the Agora Ballroom in Atlanta. And we were, in a very short period of time, we were playing high-profile gigs, which kind of began turning us into a... Yeah. A, a really a strong live act, but when you get in 1979, we chose a, a somewhat different path from our contemporaries in that we actively pursued playing in the region where there mm -hmm. were, you, know, you could maybe play a school here and there, the University yeah. of Florida, University yeah. of Carolina, you know, you know, you could play schools, you could play, there were a handful of folk and jazz clubs that had come along in the 19th. 70s regionally they, they could somehow shoehorn us into there yeah. and then a number of strange places we started playing unusual places very early on and sometimes the audiences were 
possible. We were spontaneous, funny, improvisational, and we were able, usually able to win over. So that by the time we were at Jackson Station, we were used to unusual yeah. things. But from Perfect. what I understand, Jackson Station was even more unusual than most. Yeah, that's right. But most of our contemporaries, they didn't really see a whole lot of value in that. But for the swimming pool cues, that's really how we found ourselves as a band was yep. really the crucible of regional playing. So you were really kind of part of that, that same way. You mentioned the B-52s that could open the door. And then I guess the pylon would sort of be in that group as well. And then I guess Love Tractor might be around the same time. And, and, and then REM, you know, following shortly thereafter. And then other Athens bands after that. Yes, yes. To, to your earlier point, we went to play in New York City in January 1979. So we played you know, CBGBs and clubs up and down the East Coast, uh, all the way up to Boston. And, and then when you came back from doing that, you, you could say that you'd done that, which was a big deal at yeah. the time. Yeah. You could say that you'd had done that. And then that would actually, that carried a little bit of weight. We played in Tampa in early 79 and or Columbia, South Carolina, and we would be promoted as direct from CBGB's in New York city. So <laughs> right. that was a complete baloney in a way. Yes, you're right. You could do that. And, and, and when we started out, there were in Atlanta, a lot of great bands like the brains who were really the first new wave group from the punkish group from Atlanta to get a major label record contract. They had a kind of a hit record with them. The money changes everything. But there were, you know, many other groups in Atlanta. You know, the fake were a very important band that really preceded the Qs and, and the Brains. And they were very instrumental in getting the B-52s booked in uh, New York originally at Max's City, which was, you know, popular war wall yeah. kind of venue. And of course, Atlanta had Wax and Facts Records, which was the pioneering uh, record store. And Danny Beard was one of the proprietors there. He put out the first B-52 single, which was pretty astonishingly successful. And then he went on from there to starting his label, putting out the Swimming Pool Views first record, the, the Pylon. Great re records. Yeah. Even though these bands like the B-52s and REM Pylon and Love Tractor were from Athens, they were the, their first albums were, were records were released on the Atlanta label. So it's a very real exciting and like major label recording artists were coming through major alternative, what we think of now as alternative artists were coming through Atlanta all the time. We played with countless groups here. We toured with the police in 1979 in the region. I was going to ask you about that. Did you, so you were sharing cocktails with Sting and, and, and Stuart Copeland and things or? They were a, really a, a great band musically. Their sound checks were incredible. They would just play a, a song for an hour and it was endlessly inventive. They were really good musicians. And the swimming pool cues were, myself excluded, all really good musicians. So we really appreciated that at a time when you really had to hide the fact that you actually knew how to tune your guitar. It was like a whole thing. Yeah. We really don't know how to play kind of a thing. At least didn't fool with that at all. They were, they were, um, really very friendly. Yeah. And we, 
maybe played a half dozen dates with them and, you know, got to know them, I think, pretty well. It's interesting to think about that, that New York and Atlanta connection or that North-South connection in the context of the New Wave movement, because I think you were offering something very unique to the New York audience as well. Who the hell are these people? Not just you, but I mean, all these Southern folks coming up, just the eccentricity and, and just the uniqueness there. But once again, it's still a very small world uh, nationally. And just like we do, it seemed like everybody in the region, in the South, after two or three years, we knew people up in New York and up and down the East Coast. And it was like a network. So how did you come across Jackson Station for the first time? The way that we came across Jackson Station was we had a very strong following in Columbia, the University of Carolina, and we played there a lot. I and mean, we, we played pretty big shows there. And I think that Gerald knew about us from that. And was, Chris Columbia is that far from you. That's Stephanie Miles. Yeah. I believe that he called because of that. Gerald and Steve were looking for, they were looking for unusual regional like a rock entertainment. And that's something that I think people need to remember about Jackson Station because it, it was the epitome of the Southern Blues Bar on the one hand, but then again, yeah. they also provided an opportunity for these new wave acts such as yourself. That That's right. And Gerald and S Steve aggressively, we didn't really know about <laughs> Jackson Station. He called us up. He pursued, aggressively pursued different kinds of, but he may have seen us at the University of South Carolina. So I think he may have known who we were. Yeah. If, if I can, I'd like to quote a little bit from your article. It's about club owners. And I'd like to get your uh, reaction in relation to Gerald here. And you say, generally speaking, club owners don't care much about the music. They care about money. Money is generated by smashing as many human beings as possible into the club, both the club owner and you know that there's the possibility of a bad night. That's the club owner's cue to say, okay, I'll give you the guarantee, but if you don't make it back to the door, you can just lose my phone number. You don't know me. You can forget I ever existed. Now, that's obviously an example of one of probably the many kind of unscrupulous club owners you met over you know, your career. But my sense is that, is that Gerald actually did care about the music. Absolutely. Gerald, he was not like a club owner. Oh, I, yeah, oh. Most club owners, he, he was a man with a mission and we showed up at Jackson station and there wasn't really a, you know, we didn't really understand what was happening in the middle of nowhere, which was, which was appealing to the swimming pool cue sense of adventure. Yeah. You had to have a sense of adventure to go out as a new wave or a punk band in the South in the late 1970s that you had to have mm -hmm. uh, a mission yourself. Sure. And, and you had to be, uh, have a, an attitude, like we're going to convert these people to this, to this new thing. It's not going to be Southern rock anymore. It's going to be something that there's something else here. That's going to be good. Begin to give your region a new identity. Yeah. And uh, that was politically and socially liberal. That didn't necessarily make any sense that, you know, that, that had different subject matter. Uh, so when we got to Jackson Station, and of course, you know, at Jackson Station, things didn't start to get going till later. Mm -hmm. So for a long stretch of time between the sound check and showtime, you know, there was nobody there. You didn't know what, you know, what we've got ourselves into. Yeah. 
But then around, uh, you know, 10 or 11, all different kinds of people started rolling in. You know, you could tell it wasn't just new wave and punk kind of people that we were used to. It was like people, you know, there were African-Americans, uh, gay, lesbian, motorcyclists. It was like you'd shaken up a box full of every misfit within Anderson and Greenwood. Yeah. And it, 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 it just well, spilled it on the floor. Yeah. It, it, it was like, uh, these are outdated people. And then. I remember we were in the dressing room and under the cot was a, a paperback. It was like an ancient gay paperback called doc boy. And we saw that and we, this is where, this is where the swimming pool cues really want to be. On a Friday night, this is right on. In Hodges, South Carolina. Yeah. To go on stage at the. That's club yeah and then we were always well received i remember we were well received but i have to add that we had changed our rhythm section in 1982 to bill burton on drums and j.e garnett on bass and right away became a very strong act because they were a great rhythm section you know but they hadn't really been playing with us for very long. When we played Hodges, you know, we had to select some, it's like, look, we're going to go do this thing. And it's not going to be this hip urban kind of thing that you're used to. This is going to be something different. More experimental perhaps. Yes. And so we got there and, or, you know, they were a little shaky, a little shaky. They weren't as used to these kind of situations as Bob and Ann and I were. And when it started rocking later that evening, they, they began to appreciate Jackson station. Yeah. So where would Jackson Station fit on the circuit? I mean, you're so close to Atlanta. Would you just come in for the night and then go back? Or would you sort of go, you know, from Atlanta to Hodges and then maybe up to like, you know, Charlotte or someplace and then Hickory and then head up to the East Coast that way? Or I, it, it, There were several different scenarios there. But, you know, when we first started playing Jackson Station, we could play there on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. And then go to Columbia and play the next night. Oh, oh gotcha. Okay. Clark Clemson. We played right. a club at Clemson called Edgar's. You, you could justify the routing is what I'm getting at. And, yeah. but I can remember playing in New York and coming back down the East coast and, mm-hmm. and, and landing in, in Hodges on a Friday yeah. night. We'll hear more from Dan and Jeff. Before we do that, we wanted to give you more of the sound of the swimming pool cues here the song Last is sticking my hand let's listen to a little bit of this i went back to before my returning to dan's Jackson, interview the only problem is i never been there in my life life i was dressed up like moses I was going to ask you about touring. You have a, a, a wonderful narrative, a, a wonderful description about touring in that article, which I mentioned before. It says, as a result of relative affluence, young middle-class white people develop bizarre tics, which can create tremendous tension in the confines of a small vehicle <laughs> jammed to the roof with gear and threatening to throw every imaginable rod at any given moment. There's never enough money for food. You never know where you're going to spend the night. You drive eight hours and you're still late for the gig. And some club owner 
with one buck tooth is screaming at you to throw the amplifiers up on stage and play. People in black leather make fun of your tie tack. The club manager is jacked on the white lady and doesn't recall anything about the guarantee. A tiny detail that you forgot to take care of suddenly blows up in your face like the Hindenburg. I remember only the good things, like driving through Popeye's fried chicken and ordering a can of spinach. Notwithstanding that comment about the can of spinach, that is just such a, a riveting passage. But I also tend to think that Jackson Station provided a respite from all that. But, you know, Jackson Station was so much fun then. And most of the time we were in very fun situations. In the case of the swimming pool cues, it's an unusual group of people. A lot of the bands that were our contemporaries did not come from musicianly backgrounds. This was another characteristic of the whole new wave yeah. punk thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, you take Devo. I mean, they, they were in artists and I think they were even in public relations. They were like in a more artistic side of, of PR, graphic design and whatever. But Ann Boston was uh, and is a great artist mm -hmm. and uh, an artistic personality, not someone who that I would have known, say, in Florida, where I knew a lot of musicians, you know, growing up in the Florida rock world, but they started doing what they did at a very early age, playing in clubs. All of this was a new experience for us. Bob Elsie, he'd never really been in a, like a professional rock band or anything, but he's just a tremendous creative guitar player. He was very young. He didn't grow up in that tough music world. Yeah. We were all these backgrounds that really did not. And the same could be said for almost every band in the new wave, Southern new wave that I knew. Very few were what you would have thought of as veteran musician types at, at that time. But in the case of the, of the swimming pool cues, that's, you know, where we, that's who you were jamming in the van. Yeah. <laughs> would you ever do like kind of the, the cross national trip, go all the way to California or would you do it in chunks? We signed a record deal with A&M records in 1984. When we were playing at, at Jackson station at that time, we were beginning to develop a more national profile. We were able to sign a record deal with AM Records in 1984, which was a big deal. And so when we did our first record for AM, we already had our independent early record, The Deep End, that came out. And one of the nice things was you could put out a record in 1980, 1981, and two years later, people would be talking about it, at least in our world, like it was something new. And so it had a lot of longevity to put out an independent regional release at that time that, you know, made it to England and so forth. But anyway, we signed with A&M and once we released that record, we won on a national, we're the opening act for Lou Reed on a national tour. Yeah. So it's going to ask you about that experience. It was extensive. We played all over America and up into yeah. Canada. Yeah. And you mentioned it in that article that, that Lou Reed was very kind to you and gentleman. He was great. Did you, did, it, did you have much interaction with him or just passing? Pass each other kind of coming to and from the stage or he liked us a lot, but he was very quiet person. Yeah. I, I don't think people think that, especially during that period of time, because he was like recovering from drug and alcohol problems and he was serious about the recovery. So he didn't want to interact too much with anybody, right. but he was really nice to, he was very nice to us. And he wanted us when we completed that tour. 
which would have been November 1984, he wanted us to go to Europe and play in Europe with him. So he was so cool. He, he liked us a lot. He once saw me with a Velvet Underground biography. Yeah. And our band history. And he said, Chap, don't believe a word of it. <laughs> I, I said, you mean it's all true? But he was a um, very supportive guy. And it was interesting being on the inside of a tour like that. Yeah. yeah. Was he playing solo? Did he have a big backup band? And he had a good, really good band. Tremendous bass player named Fernando Saunders, who I believe recorded with him quite a bit to that point. He was a great musician. But the whole band was good. And uh, interestingly, the drummer uh, was a guy named Lenny. We had played with Lenny before at a show at the University of Florida that was sensational. It was an outdoor show, Halloween party. And we were supporting the Plasmatics. Of course, the Plasmatics had an old Studebaker on stage that they were going to blow up. And that was part of the routine. And they had these extremely professional, like Hollywood stunt guys that mm -hmm. would wire the, the car up so that when it blew, everything would go like that. But it was all wired up. So nothing so it was all managed. Yeah. So when we opened the show, there were a lot of people there. like. 10,000 people and some promotional man had passed out 12 inch discs of something he was promoting to, to the crowd. So halfway through the set, they started using his Frisbees and they were, <laughs> he played the full set. We were scrunched on the left side of the stage because the crew said, listen, this, you can't make any movement. The whole car could go. And it could, could go off prematurely. Yeah, exactly. It could blow up and it could be a bad situation. And then the record started flying. It was terror. But when we left the stage, we were fortunate and it was maybe two songs before the end that the Frisbee started happening. We left the stage, there was a stack of vinyl, maybe that high, all the way across the stage. We had to crunch over to get up. But the second act was Charles Rocket, who you won't probably remember, but Charles was a major star on Saturday Night Live. Uh, he did the early uh, news, whatever uh -huh. SNL news was, and he played the electric accordion. He had Marshall Stack that he played an electric accordion through. Wow. And the dr his drummer was Lenny. So it's a long story that goes nowhere, but yeah, yeah. that's Lenny who was loose drummer on that tour because of uh, right the Charles Rocket. Yeah, that's great. Later on, you take a, a hiatus. You're busy with your other recording obligations and the band gets a little bit bigger than Jackson Station. So you don't play that much, but then you play there again later with Supreme Court, which is a band that you have uh, co-founded with Glenn Phillips, yes. who actually was on a previous episode, which was great. How had Jackson Station changed over the years? You were provided an interesting perspective too, because you played there February 23rd, 1990. So that would have been about a month and a half before Gerald was hit in the head with a bush axe in the parking lot. Yes, I don't remember if we played with the swimming pool cues. We had an album that came out in 89. The cues might have played there, but I do know I played with the Supreme Court there. And, you know, it really hadn't changed that much. Jackson Station was like really going back in time that they had that stove right in front of the stage. I mean, it was like 1890. Uh -huh. yeah. But rock bands were, were just 
plop down in the middle of it. It might have uh, lost a little bit of uh, its um, uh, novelty by then, but it was still, it was always enjoyable. So we knew what to expect when we got there. But I'm really glad that Ann Boston, she was a great artist and she was a really good photographer. She documented our trips to Jackson Station yes. quite, quite a bit. And so you can really see in her pictures. Right. A, a couple or three, which are in the book. Yeah. Oh, and, and all the other pictures that, you know, we, we have really document what that the place was like. I mean, really, there wasn't really any place else like that. Yeah. I mean, I remember once playing in Huntsville, Alabama, where we had to play on a dirt floor. And you would expect that in the town that had the space. Yeah. But there wasn't really any other, certainly wasn't any place like that in South Carolina that we played. And we played quite a few places in Greenville, uh, Spartanburg, Columbia, and Charleston. And there was nothing really, I mean, you know. Yeah. And, and it seems that circuit, which we alluded to before, that new wave circuit, that's all gone. Even before the, the pandemic, very few of these smaller clubs. And it seems like you have the bigger convention hall, convention center kind of shows and you have the big festivals, but it's really the, the large venues, which you see on the music scene today. And rather than touring people, they zoom in and, and zoom out. So in other words, if you had a show in, in Charlotte or whatever, you would go and do that show in Charlotte and then go home as opposed to like trying to eke out a living, doing a number of shows up the East coast. Yeah, I think really you begin to see that all change by the time that you're talking about, say 1990, you're really beginning to see this original new wave-ish kind of circuit in the region begin to decline. Yeah. Uh, I think the reason for that is because of the drinking age. All of the audience for creative pop music at, at that time anyway uh, you know, a big part of that was college age kids, you know, that they had access to college radio. They were interested in all these new groups, but when they were cut out of the equation, you begin to see that things change quite a bit and yeah, club owners were less willing to take chances on unusual groups. Whereas in the, in the early 1980s and through the better part of the decade, they were. Yeah. And I was going to ask you one question about Vegas in 1979. You mentioned in the article about going to Vegas with your life savings and winning a fortune in Vegas, but then horror losing it the very next night in Reno. And now if, if it's too traumatic, Jeff, we don't need to go into it. There was a little bit of an embellishment. I can assure you that there was no place to play for the swimming pool cues. We didn't have a play in Vegas. I think we yeah. passed through there on uh, on the Lou Reed tour. We might have passed through Vegas, yeah. but no, I didn't really win or lose a significant amount of money there. That that was a, an an embroidery. Tell me how the book has been received. The book has been received very well, especially locally. A lot of people have come up to me and, and said that they think that I did a really good job with the story and and well researched. And a lot of people obviously knew Gerald and and Steve and his mother, Elizabeth Jackson. And so I, I think that the fact that I seem to have convinced the locals that the story has merit and that I've got all my ducks in a row, I, I think that 
is, is significant. And then word is like slowly starting to get out a little bit. There was an audio book that was made simultaneously. And so that's cool. And then this podcast. And so it's kind of cool to continue the story and continue the conversations. Because one thing I've learned is that people have these amazing Jackson Station stories. If it hadn't been for you telling your stories to Walter Salas Humara in Atlanta before he came to Greenwood to play his show, honestly, this whole thing wouldn't be happening. I'm glad that we, the swimming pool kids could help get this story off the ground. It was an amazing story. And it's not just the club. It was the dynamic Gerald and Steve, his mom in relation to this place, you know, the place as much as it was a club, a special place. And yeah. that's really the story. The people are there. And uh, I wish that Gerald and Steve were still, you know, around and any, any hope that's going to be revived as a venue. I hope so. I'm, I'm doing my best to bring attention to it. Um, you know, for reasons we talked about before, it's not an easy task. I would imagine being a club owner in this day and age, and, and certainly the depot would need a lot of work, a new roof and asphalt parking lot and just in order to get it up and running. But those challenges aren't unique to, to the new owner of the club, obviously. And I think whatever you do, it's going to have to take a lot of work and passion. I think you're going to really have to find someone who really had that drive that that Gerald had to make it their own because it really was his vision, right? You talked about yes. being on a mission before, and I think every artist can relate to that. And I think that's what Gerald was trying to do. He was a very creative person. He was trying to create this environment, you know, this musical artistic environment. And he had to put his, you know, part, his whole soul into it really. I mean, they lived in the place, you know, he and, he and Steve, they lived there. I do know that. Gerald was someone who he had seen a lot of darkness. He had been in Vietnam, as I recall, had been a, a medic. So Gerald was not some sheltered individual. Gerald had seen bad things yeah. uh, before. And I, I think he was just happy when he started Jackson Station. This was a life-affirming situation for him. And I think that was reflected in his attitude and in the, in, in the tolerance mm-hmm. uh, that he exhibited toward the people that came and to, toward the band. He was an ecumenical personality. Yeah. Good. I think that's a good way to end it. So Jeff Calder, founding member of the Swimming Pool Cues, writer extraordinaire. Check out his writing in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, among other publications. Jeff, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, Thank it's you. been wonderful. Thanks, Dana. At any time, I really yeah. uh, love the book. And you count on the swimming pool cues. We'll just get some electricity. That's all you need. Yeah. We'll, we'll be there on the stage. Great stuff there with Dan Harrison and Jeff Calder, the founder and lead singer of the Swimming Pool Cues. It's the type of conversation we love to bring you here at Inside Jackson Station, get you some perspective on what it felt like to perform there, to be part of that ecumenical, tolerant, inclusive experience, something that many of us wouldn't expect to be found in an old railroad depot in the uplands of Hodges, South Carolina, but that's why we're telling the story. We'll let Jeff and the swimming pool cues take us out. This time with Anne Richmond Boston singing 
Now I'm talking about now. Thanks for listening to Inside Jackson Station.